You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And this is Vernacular Podcast, Season 7, Episode 2. We and the neighbor's dog that's yeah. barking incessantly Shout that you out may or dog. may not be able to hear. <laughs> Want to wish you a happy beginning of this wonderful podcast episode <laughs> yeah shout out to all of the neighborhood dogs who like to crash our podcast recording sessions there are so many dogs i mean and we love dogs yeah I, we're pro dog but i i i don't think it's the same dog it does seem like there are multiple dogs yeah and the times the... when they bother me the most are in the middle of the night <laughs> yes yeah it's like midnight twelve thirty, yeah. and this dog is just going crazy now, to be fair, that was only one night when that happened, but still. That we know of. Yeah. That we know. That, that actually woke us up. Right. It kept us up, yeah. Right. And the other time it bothers me is when we're trying to record. Right. But True. just know we live in a dog-friendly neighborhood. Anyway, we also wanted to mention to all of our wonderful listeners out there to check out our Patreon page, which is a page where you can support our podcast. Yeah, so Patreon's this cool platform that lets you support artists and producers and creators. For as little as $1 a month. Yeah. So we've set up a Patreon page for Vernacular, Patreon patreon.com slash vernacular that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n and there you can go and just read about kind of the mission of vernacular why we started this why we're continuing it two and a half or so years on and you can um you can leave a verbal note of support there or you can sign up to financially support us and we appreciate whichever of those you you choose to do um for each donation you get some sort of prize so that could range from being mentioned on a podcast to being featured on a lightning round like nathan last week yeah nathan's one of our most loyal and consistent and and longtime supporters and uh now he a patreon, is a supporter. patreon supporter and it was a lot of fun to have him on have him on for a lightning round yeah and for more money a month you can get a batch of zach's famous chocolate chip cookies That's you can right. also offer us a suggestion for a podcast yeah you can and help we... us kind of plan future episodes yeah. and shape the direction of the show so definitely check it out patreon.com slash vernacular we also want to ask you if you haven't already to go onto apple podcasts and give us a rating and or review just let us know what you like about the show what you don't like what we can do better how we can make it better and that'll uh, help our ratings in the itunes store and just help us reach more people with the messages we're trying to Send. Yeah, somehow the more ratings and reviews you get, the easier it is for people to find your podcast. I don't really know how that works, but I, th I think you have a chance of being in like featured lists. Okay. The, yeah. On okay. Podcast, podcast store, podcast app, whatever it's, whatever they want to call it now. <laughs> yeah, so you know, it's changing. Apple Podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. The final thing is we have launched the newest show of the Vernacular Podcast Network. We're officially a network now that we have two shows. Exciting. And it's called Third String, 3RD String. You can find it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, but again, it's 3RD String. So if you search T-H-I-R-D, it might not you show up. You won't find it, yeah. Um, because that's another thing. The Apple Podcast search engine is actually not that good. Like, mm. They need to talk to Google about improving that. Anyway, yeah. so 3RD String, and it is a vernacular podcast show, uh, but it's about sports and news, a little bit of pop culture here and there. So it's going to be pretty unlike what we've done on vernacular, but we have done some episodes on vernacular episodes. before. bonus episodes, yeah. Yeah, me and Ishan Nath, who's a longtime vernacular contributor, and we've talked about sports, and we've kind of done the third string model. So we're doing that on a weekly basis now with third string. We're really excited about it. We, re we released the first episode last week and we will be releasing the second this week around the same time this episode drops. So if you are at all intrigued by any of that, or you're totally ignorant about sports and just want to maybe just see how the show goes, maybe learn a little, little bit about sports, then please check that out. 3RD string, third string. Uh, you can also go on our website, vernacularpodcast.com slash third string and read more about it there. Yeah. We'd love to hear what you think. And I think 
that wraps up our sort of beginning notes here. So Yeah, on to our interview. All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We're very excited for this conversation today. We are joined by Dr. William Hurlbut. Uh, Dr. Hilbert is a adjunct professor of neurobiology at Stanford Medical School. He's trained as a physician, so he's an MD and now is an adjunct professor at Stanford. Uh, he's also the director of the Boundaries of Humanity program there. And in past work, he's worked uh, on the President's Council on Bioethics. He was there from 2002 to 2009 and has also done some interesting things with NASA on projects in astrobiology. Our interest in having him on here today, uh, the reason we've brought him on to talk to us, is because of his intimate involvement with CRISPR-Cas9. Dr. Hurlbert is uh, one of the people most intimately involved in charting a course for the future with CRISPR-Cas9 and how we are going to apply these technologies to uh, to genetic editing in the future. So, Dr. Hurlbert, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I think I'll start with maybe a basic question. Uh, big picture, CRISPR-Cas9, we've talked about it on our podcast before, but uh, can you walk us through exactly what we're talking about with CRISPR-Cas9 uh, in, in layman's terms for someone like me who's not not a doctor? Sure. Uh, so CRISPR is an acronym that it stands for something having to do with, with a particular sort of immune mechanism in bacteria. But the real amazing and exciting thing about this is that it has been retooled now as a, as a technology for um, more rapid, efficient, and and capable genetic editing with a wide range of uses. And so that's basically what it is. It's a revolutionary advance in our capacity to, to manipulate genetic structures and genetic expressions in ways that will revolutionize not just biology and medicine, but and not just agriculture and and associated fields, but all, all it'll permeate vast realms of our society with new and innovative possibilities. So when we're talking about the, the opportunities for CRISPR to, uh, to be involved in therapeutic treatments, are we talking about a, a technology that can only be used in the embryonic stage, or can this be used on, on a 40-year-old patient who has multiple, multiple sclerosis, for example? It depends on what your, your task is at hand. It it can be used at any stage at any kind of cells in theory. And of course, it's hard to deliver them into the middle of, a, of the body, but there are ways to vectors and various vehicles for getting this mechanism into cells. So, so scientists are actually talking about curing genetic diseases or at least treating genetic diseases in, in adults and at all ages of life, even after birth. But if you want to change the foundational um, molecular sequence of the DNA that is inherited by all the cells of the human body, you have to go in very, very early in, in embryological development or even before the formation of an embryo to the sperm and the egg and alter the DNA there. And that's generally called germline therapy. The latter is called somatic cell therapy. Somatic cell therapy is being actively pursued in mostly young adults to try to cure uh, genetic diseases. And there are very hopeful signs of the capacity to do that. Have we seen any recent breakthroughs in, in doing exactly that, treating these genetic diseases in young adults? These are in experimental phases right now, but there have been some very hopeful uh, reports of 
of perhaps what can be labeled a cure in sickle cell anemia and several other blood-borne diseases. See, it's much easier to do do these procedures if you can take the cells or representative cells that will produce more cells out of the body, do the manipulations in the lab, and then put the cells back into the body. And of course, you can do that with with blood stem cells. Um, it's not as easy to do with with certain other tissues and a lot harder to do with brain cells. But uh, we're making amazing progress on many fronts. That's but incredible. That, yeah, it's amazing. It's uh, And it's not just changing the genes themselves, but as I mentioned, they can actually go in now with special tools and change the gene expression patterns. That means, you know, and it, we have a DNA that three billion base pairs of DNA, um, actually six billion if you take the, the, the mother and father's contribution, and and much of it is is just unknown in its function, but a certain small percentage actually codes for proteins, which are the active agents of structure and function within the human body. They're the major one. There are others, of course, but once you can control the the production of proteins, that means you can control a lot of functions in the body especially if you can do it during development, so during human development. So th these are very exciting clients, both for, for research purposes and potentially for therapies. Some of these aims and goals and, and breakthroughs are not controversial, but, but there are, are others that probably should give us pause. As, as a trained physician and as a bioethicist, what, what ethical challenges do you see in the use of CRISPR? Well, there are many, and and I think in an overarching way, we could say that it, it causes us to to have to pause and ponder what is the source and significance of the natural world and the order that we see before us. We all know, and I, as a physician, know very clearly that the nature that nature is mysteriously beautiful full of order full of the revelation of some kind of significance in our lives and that our lives and their significance are tied into the way that that the natural world is structured at the same time we know that this natural world produces uh, diseases disorders frustrations and actually you could say genuine horrors so it's not a simple thing to say well what is nature? Is it good? Is it bad? It's it's a strange mix of, of mysterious purposes that that both give our lives meaning and challenges challenge us on very deep levels. And so interventions using CRISPR will go to the very very foundations of living systems and give us the possibilities for intervening against dread diseases, altering our lives in positive ways, perhaps by increasing agricultural yields, uh, making healthier pets, and so forth. But it also opens amazing challenges for us when we think about having um, large and perhaps in some ways unbridled possibilities for, for going in and altering nature. Um, some people are speaking of redesigning whole ecosystems, getting rid of species that are disruptive, unnatural to us, places like Australia where the foreign species have been introduced and are killing off and 
of the, the local species. And so the, these are very big tools, and they have a great potential for good and evil, and the evil would include even the possible warfare or in terrorism. So there are great challenges ahead. So just to, to carry on this point a little bit more, it seems like maybe some people are already getting a little bit carried away with the possibilities of this, because when you talk to us about the possibility of curing sickle cell anemia, that seems like a, a pretty localized goal, certainly an admirable aim, something we can all support. But already, before we've even seen uh, what sounds like absolute success, I mean, just while those trials are still ongoing, people are already talking about reshaping entire ecosystems. That, to me, sounds like uh, maybe just a classic example of hubris, right? Thinking that we can we can do more with this technology than we know is possible. Uh, that strikes me as perhaps a, a dangerous combination. Would you agree? Well, I would agree that there is potential for that danger. It's a, it's a strange phenomenon, though, because technologies are always ambiguous in that regard, and human beings just seem to have the, the imagination and the appetites and ambitions to do things that are beyond the scope of most necessities or, or dealing with very serious issues. I mean, we're we're pretty open-ended species. We we have a lot of things we'd like to to transform in the world, and some of it's selfish, and some of it's um, uh, it's it's hard to characterize exactly because it's a such such a strange mix of, of good and evil. But I think definitely hubris is an appropriate word in some circumstances. In fact, there's a whole rising phenomenon now of of um, people who claim that that we've come from an evolutionary perspective, from an evolutionary process that is cruel and contingent, that we're the coincidence of the various circumstances of the past, and that therefore we ought to take charge of our own existence in a very deep level. And the most prominent among these are the transhumanists. I'm sure you've heard of them. Their symbol is an H+. In other words, they want to design, redesign humans to make them even better, give them a H plus, not just the normal H. H, and th their schemes are are uh, pretty dramatic. They want to increase our intelligence, our performances in other physical ways. They want to um, meld us with machine um, parts to produce kind of cyborgs and enhance our our capacities, our longevities, our beauties. And they even speak in terms of post-humans that are transcend even existing humans in such a way that the old model, such as you and I, might be considered outmoded and sort of pathetic and might even be relegated to some sort of servant status or put us in zoos. I mean, this is, this is speculative and I think largely unrealistic, but it still does raise very challenging issues, and it certainly isn't. A prime ex exhibition for human human hubris. I I totally agree, and, and I'm well familiar with transhumanism. Uh, I read an, a novel earlier this year called The Transhumanist Manifesto by Zoltan Istvan. Um, he's one of the leading transhumanists that I know of in in America, and the, the the ideas espoused in that book just strike me as as dangerous uh, and hubristically, like we've talked about, but also just unattractive. I don't think I want to live in a world where. Uh, everybody is is biomechanically enhanced, or where where uh, consciousness is uploaded to a cloud, etc. Um, but well, getting... I, just to interrupt you there, I, I I agree with you on that. But I, I honestly, I don't think you're going to have to worry quite so much about 
these speculative ideas. I, for one, don't think we'll be um, uploading consciousness in, in, into the cloud, not just anytime soon, but maybe ever. I mean, just to, just to give you a focus on that, my appointment at Stanford's in the Department of Neurobiology, and there may be some, some people who disagree with me that I haven't spoken with, but nobody I know seriously thinks that we're, we're anywhere close to understanding the brain enough to download it. And besides that, everybody who really knows about the brain knows that it's a dynamic structure, constantly changing moment to moment. The connections between nerves are not like fixed wires. They're dynamic. They change. And they change over seconds and minutes. They, it's not like even if you did download somebody, they wouldn't be the same person five minutes later. And there'd be subtle differences, but enough so that you wouldn't be on the same trajectory. I, I just some of those those scenarios just don't ring true to me. But getting down to more realistic and more media concerns, the idea of retooling human genetics so we produce a superior species might have some credibility if if you first of all wipe out even diseases and also enhance some things that are you know different than the way they were shaped in the evolutionary process george church at at harvard who's it's a very nice guy and a very thoughtful creative guy has come up with with a dozen or more rare protective alleles that are found these are different forms of gene genes found in rare circumstances in in the human gene pool. And he thinks that if these were more common, it would be a better species. So that's one possible realistic scenario for people wanting to retool human beings. But when it comes to things like longevity, beauty, uh, superior intelligence, these, these are traits controlled by hundreds, maybe thousands of genes and gene interactions. They're very, very complicated. And so as far as the state of our current knowledge goes, it's not going to be easy to to do much on those scores that'll be worth the risks associated with it. But who knows long term? And of course, there are serious proposals for uh, altering human embryos very early on and experimenting with them to figure out when, which raises another very large scale issue we probably should talk about. So I take your point about the the knowledge point that we don't have the knowledge necessary to do all these things. But if we if we frame the ethical objections to CRISPR along two lines, one being a uh, I guess you could say a knowledge based objection or a limitations based objection, the other one being maybe a values based objection. Uh, what what can you say about the latter? So um, by that I mean you've outlined that we don't have the full knowledge to uh, enhance beauty or intelligence or longevity through this method. So uh, if we tried to do that, we might be then causing some unintended side effects that would be unforeseen. And because of that, we need to have limitations on the ways we try to go about this. But in a, in a future in which we have perfect knowledge of that, if, if hypothetically some scientist 10 years from now figures out the exact combination of genes to achieve opt optimal intelligence, um, what then become the objections to, to doing that? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It completely does. And it, the former, the risks associated and the lack of knowledge are the, the primary focus of most people's concern within the scientific community. Although I have to say, this is a first moment. I, I've been around in these arenas for a long time and studied at Stanford Medical School when recombinant DNA genetic engineering was first coming forward. And there were lots of discussions in those days. But I think for the first time, Many scientists I know are actually quite worried about this technology, that people could use it for imprudent things. And their values are creeping back in, not just risks. 
And but back to the risk issue for first for a moment, I, we may learn that some of the things we want are simply balances against other things we would want. We we as a human species are a general purpose organism. We're good at many things, and it's that combination of of purposes and capacities that make us who we are as individual beings and as a collective species. And so we, we could screw up that balance badly if we start fooling around trying to make ourselves hyper-specialized. That's what a lot of different species do, is they're very specialized particular niches and particular capacities. I mean, I can't see rodents running on the ground from 5,000 feet the way an owl can, but, but you know, I, I, I have certain balance of, of, of sensory... It's our embodiment and our balance of being that gives us the capacities and the rich lives we have. So it may not be possible to do some of the things that some people want to do. But back to the issue of values, would we want to even if we could? And that's a really good point you make, and I agree with you that what we really need to do is have a profound reflection on the values that are driving all this and what we would want to be if we could be. Uh, I was at a conference that I organized, actually, with with George Church's wife, Ting Wu, and Ting Wu, and she very thoughtfully said, "What do we want to be a hundred years from now? Will we like what's into?" Which is a very, very important question. When it comes to gene editing, what parameters do you think we should set for the use of CRISPR for the sake of humanity? What do you think there are there there are bright lines that we can draw, perhaps between enhancement and therapy or between somatic cells and embryonic cells? You mentioned um, research on embryonic cells. What parameters do you think we can set, if any? That's that's a really, really important question right now. And it's one that's going to have to be discussed. And I hope through with broad social public participation. The, I served on the President's Council during the so-called stem cell wars, and it was very intense. Until 9-11, that was the most prominent public controversy in our nation. President Bush gave his first public address on that on August 9th, 2001, and of course it was just a little more than a month later that that 9-11 put everything else on the somewhat to the back burner. Nonetheless, for the whole time I was on the President's Council, embryonic stem cell research was still a very, very difficult conversation in our civilization. And one of the reasons it was, and I think the reason it came up in the first place, was because it was really the first in a, in a unfolding series of challenging questions that will arise during this era of the, of the study of developmental biology. We spend most of the 20th century of figuring out about basic molecular components, the ingredients, if you will, of life. Now, as we cross into the 21st century and, and beyond, with the human genome sequenced, we're starting to look at how those components are knit together to produce living beings. And that, of course, puts us not into the test tube and isolated molecules, puts us into the realm of living organisms. A lot of that can be done, that study can be done with animal models, but there are certain things that people argue you can only do with human embryos, and that's why the controversy is so great. And by the way, CRISPR's main contributions, and these are fabulous contributions, will come largely 
through the study, through their research applications, to study and understanding the sources of normal development and the sources of pathological disease development. So um, there will be strong arguments that we should use human embryos in these studies, and that's of course already happened in the United States and all and in several other places in the world. Now. That's going to create a big conflict because, like in the case of recent studies in both China and the United States and soon in, in the United Kingdom, they're creating embryos specifically to study them and then discard them. And that that runs right up against our traditional moral principles of, of the inviolability of human life. Even where we allow abortion in our civilization— the argument for that is in the Supreme Court's ruling in Roe v. Wade is based on a on a principle of of privacy, the woman's right not to have a baby in her womb. I don't agree with that ruling. I'm I personally do not favor abortion as a solution, um, even if the problems are very deep, which I acknowledge they often are. I think it's the wrong answer. But quite apart from the issue of abortion, the the issue of use of human embryos in research raises completely different questions. Those are not in anybody's body. There's no issue of privacy. There's a, there's a matter of creating human embryos, beginning stages of real human lives, ones that would go on to be little babies and then little children and then adults that, that are in the earliest stages of development. And that's a very hard question for people to deal with. I personally do not favor the creation and destruction of human embryos for research. And partly for Definitely for principled reasons, and partly for reasons of prudence. I don't see any argument that says that if you're going to use embryos to 14 days, you shouldn't use them to 16, 18, 20, 22, 30, and maybe 60 days and on. It's just all these arguments don't hold together, in my opinion, and that's where we're heading. There's already an argument in the United Kingdom whether they should extend their 14-day principle to 28 days. So this is going to be a huge controversy, and CRISPR has opened it up in in a way that's going to make embryonic stem cell controversy seem like mere prelude. Well, I know that you've been working with uh, Dr. Jennifer Doudna on uh, some of these these uh, issues surrounding CRISPR specifically, and, and Dr. Doudna, of course, one of the originators of the CRISPR-Cas9 technique, or at least one of the original people who suggested it could be used on human gene editing, I think. And you are, are working with her on an effort to uh, to have conversations in the scientific community about the applications for CRISPR. So I'm wondering if you could just give us a, a quick glimpse into how that effort is going. Are people receptive to having these types of conversations? And, and I guess, for lack of a better phrase, proceeding with caution? Yes. And Jennifer, um, although her primary focus of her professional life has been laboratory science, and she's a fabulous scientist, but beyond that, she's a person with a, with a real feeling for the sense of, of importance of, of being alert to what we're doing, both morally and ecologically in the, our treatment of human life, animal life, and the larger sphere of the natural world. She grew up in, in Hawaii. Her father was a, was a literature professor, and she has a certain literary depth in her, in her nature, which is very nice to work with. Uh, I like working with her very much. We don't necessarily agree on everything. I, I don't think she shares quite my feelings about embryo research, but she is alert to the dangers of, of this, this powerful new technology. And she understands that we're at the early edge of a revolution 
that a technological revolution, but also a social, personal, political revolution. There's going to be competition between countries. There's going to be uh, conflicts of values that are going to be expressed in cultural disagreements. And so she and I both share a vision of wanting to facilitate both the education of and engagement of the general public. And by education, neither Jennifer nor I mean some kind of top-down, arrogant project of educate and inform as though the scientific community and the academic community are the elite people among us. We both share the conviction that the uses of these technologies should be be the, the purview of the the common person, or there's no such thing as a common person, but the, the people in the less visible realms of life uh, f f the, in respect to what how these issues are normally debated and adjudicated. And both of us share the convictions that it's the people who do the perennial ongoing tasks of human life, the, the people who have the babies serve as their parents, the people who work in day-to-day -day jobs that maintain the structure of life, their lives are going to be affected by this dramatically, and they should have a voice in both the science that's done and the application of the science that's discovered. And so that's what we're trying to do, organize a project of outreach that, that uh, both informs but also engages the general public, and one that also part of our project will also be to have high-level conversations about the deepest issues raised by these these technologies, and hopefully on an international level, so that we can form some kind of harmonious communication worldwide, because these issues are going to be global issues. They're, they're really not the issues for experts, they're issues for the whole human family, and that whole human family is a global family. They're, it's really species issues that are at stake here. Well, that's uh, very well said, Dr. Hurlbut, and I want to take this opportunity to just thank you for coming on and talking to us about CRISPR-Cas9, and in a broader sense, thank you very much for the valuable work that you're doing in your community and, and to educate, uh, as you said, sort of the whole human family on these issues and why they're very important to think through. So thanks once again for talking to us about this, and uh, best wishes as you continue this work. Thank you very much. It was very nice talking with you. We're back to wrap things up with a second episode of season seven. I wanted to mention a little PSA, I guess, that uh, – so I mentioned that the books that I'm reading in the last episode. Right. And I'm reading The Terror Years by Lawrence Wright. And to my dismay, I found out that it's just a collection of articles that he had already published in The New Yorker. So the first three chapters, as far as I can tell, are pretty much – redundant if you've already read The Looming Tower, which so, I have. So The Terriers is basically a Lawrence Wright anthology. Yeah, it feels like, I don't know, it feels like not a full effort because it's, it's not it's an like, actual It's like a greatest book. hits album. Yeah. That's because that's how I feel about when it, how when a musician releases a greatest hits album. Yeah. It's clearly, okay, you guys just didn't want to release an album this year. Right, you didn't want to right. put in the effort. Right. So you're just like, oh, this throw, throw, throw a greatest hits album out. New Yorker article. What's crazy to me, I mean, Lawrence Wright is a good article with the full Yeah, here. yeah. And I'm excited to read the articles that I haven't read yet, but right. I was just kind of bummed when I started reading it and I was like, this is what I've already read. And I thought that I was going to be learning all this cool new stuff about ISIS or something. Sure. Well, maybe the second maybe part the, of the later book? ones. Yeah, yeah, perhaps, perhaps. So yeah, that was my first thing that I wanted to say. My second thing is that 
I have, as I said, been reading Gaudy Night. And I will say that I think part of my problem the first time I read it is that I just read it without having read any other Peter Whimsey mysteries. And so if you want to read Dorothy Sayers, I think I would actually recommend, contrary to the advice that I had received, that you start with some of the earlier books, namely Strong Poison. So yeah, anyways, for anyone out there who actually is interested in reading Dorothy Sayers, that would be my recommendation. Don't sell yourself short. We've had a few social media comments about Dorothy Sayers. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. So so if you're not a fan already but want to become one, start with Strong Poison. Lord Peter Whimsy. <laughs> and Miss Harriet Vane. Are they the main characters in all of them? Um, no, only four, which are the oh, four okay. that I'm reading. Gotcha. Yeah. But no, there's a ton of Peter Whimsy ones. Oh, I just haven't, okay. I'm just reading the four with the two of them. I see. Yeah. Copy. Yeah. Well, there's always more to explore than later, I guess. Also, do we have a PSA about Bosch? <laughs> Uh, right, well, are we, I mean, the P- I guess the PSA would be that the second season seems a little so far not. I don't know. We've watched two episodes, three episodes. Yeah, so maybe we're agnostic on that. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I mean, stay tuned for our Bosch reviews. We might. <laughs> I don't know. I would say I don't think we ever gave it an unqualified. No, we just said we were approval. watching it. Yeah, yeah. We just said yeah. we. Were, I mean, we enjoyed the first season. Some unnecessary. I'm just trying to stuff. protect our good name and make sure that we're not. You know, our good name is movie and film and yeah, literature critics. Yeah, not putting our, our support <laughs> behind something that doesn't right doesn't rise to the critical standards that we have that we hold podcast. here. Yeah. <laughs> um. I, yeah. I don't think we really have a PSA. I mean, okay. I guess that would be the PSA if there is one. Yeah. The second season of Bosch seems a little soapy, <laughs> and we have had trouble getting into it. There's this whole. Like, weird storyline with the police chief trying to... Just overacted. Yeah, way overacted. Yeah. The main character is good. The main storyline seems pretty good. But a lot of the sort of auxiliary storylines are not doing it for us. Yeah, yeah. But anyway. All right. Well, if you have listened this far into the episode, I applaud you. Well done. Well, you have made it. (laughs) Now is the obligatory part where we just tell you about our social media feeds. Yes. At Vernacular Pod for Instagram and Twitter. And Twitter. Facebook.com slash vernacular podcast, which is really all but defunct because we don't. Yeah, I really don't think we need to mention that anymore. We don't, uh, we don't really Facebook <laughs> here anymore. I don't even bother to post on it. We're mostly about the Insta, a little bit about the Twitter. Yeah, check out our Instagram because we went to a really cool popsicle place in Austin this weekend. It's called Steel City Pops. Yeah. And it was really delicious. It was amazing. I had a coconut popsicle dipped in dark chocolate, dusted with espresso powder. Yeah, it was magical. And I had an avocado lime popsicle. What? It was yes. like guacamole in but a popsicle. Sweet. Yeah. I say guacamole the way Jeb Bush says guacamole, by the way. That's why I say mole. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, okay. I think we're done. I think so too. Okay, so we mentioned websites. Give us your feedback. Yeah, reach out on social media or And don't email. forget Patreon. Yes. Yeah, so all, all of these there. things. <laughs> I, I don't know. We're like this is kind of weird this time. We're just getting slap happy at I the end so. of a long night. Yeah. Okay, and I think that's it. All right, everyone, have a great week. week. Oh, we have to do this again. Hold on. All right, for Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. better than When I'm by your side.